Welcome to Access Church. And I just want to say a huge thank you for making the effort to come out and connect, especially if you're new to church or to Access. It's a, it's a challenging year to make new connections, isn't it? I mean, uh, it just is. It just simply is. Uh, 2020 is just a strange year. And whether you're making that connection with the first time online or whether you've actually braved the building and came here to be with us, I just, just want to thank you for that effort you have made to be present. Uh, if, if there was ever a year for germaphobes, this is it. And, and making these new connections is really, really hard. But, but God rewards that, that effort we make to, to reach out to him. And even within these moments, you'll find God reaching out to you as you make the effort to connect with him. We hope that, that by spending these moments together, you become convinced that the God of the Bible is worth relating to. He's not some, some this big guy in the sky that's impersonal. No, he wants to be intimately involved in our lives and he wants to do life with us. His mercies start fresh every single day. And so no matter what lies in your past, when we choose to turn our eyes towards this living God, he embraces us and takes us forward. We've been working through the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're nearly finished. Next weekend will be the final instalment. And we've been considering the greatest return, which is the return of Christ that infuses hope into our everyday life now. It's not something way up there. It's something that impacts our today. And some of the big ideas we've been considering are this. The what is very certain. The when is anything but. The when Jesus will return is anything but certain. And it's in all of our best interest to be ready to have made our peace with God so that when Jesus comes, we're not caught off guard. We are looking forward to that time. Now, the timing of it is mysterious. As soon as somebody makes predictions about the matter and says, I know, I know, I know, you know that person's a nutcase. That's what you know. Nobody knows the day or the hour. We don't have a clue about the when, we only know the what. We're just called to be ready so that when it happens, we are all sweet. We're good to go. The early church drew ongoing encouragement from return, especially this young church at Thessalonica. Because their suffering is so deep, they can't wait for Jesus, King Jesus to come and pull the world back in order how it belongs. They didn't dread this day up ahead as some kind of gotcha moment. They anticipated Christ's return, longing for it to happen. The early believers lived with a sense of urgency in light of this. From a New Testament perspective, you can see the way that, that they, they really anticipated it was going to be any moment. It wasn't way up there. For them, it could be today. As they got out of bed each morning, they, they no doubt mumbled the words, maybe today, maybe today. It was so real for them and therefore it dramatically affected their everyday lives. We've spoken about things like marriage and possessions and how all of this was tipped on its head because their priorities changed. Because life wasn't all about whoever dies with the most toys wins. No, no, everything had shifted because beginning with the end in mind meant that they lived differently today. So as we reach the back end of 1 Thessalonians 5, it seems like Paul the preacher is running out of time because by the time we get here, we're getting three-word slogans. Reminds me of a politician a few years back. But we get these little three-word punchy sayings that are here in the end of chapter 5. And we're starting at verse 16. It says this, Always be joyful. Never stop praying. 
Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Do not stifle the Holy Spirit. Do not scoff at prophecies, but test everything that is said and hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this portion of his holy word. I want to look at these few verses through the lens of growing faith. Growing faith, because this, that's what this church is. They're a growing bunch of baby believers. They're new to church. They're new to Christian faith. And it seems to me that these closing comments are designed to continue to drive them forward in that developing faith that they have. So let's consider what a growing faith looks like. It looks like a consistent level of spirituality. And that's what we see in verses 16 to 18, emphasis on the word consistent, consistent. Followers of Jesus are not supposed to be unpredictable, you know, all over the shop, here one minute, gone the next. That's not their go. Genuine Christ followers aren't flaky. You know, it's, it's not like handling an eel on a humid day in Brisbane. Followers of Jesus, they're easier to read than that. They're more predictable than that. There's a faithfulness in their lifestyle. They're not in fellowship one day and then gone for months. There's a predictability about their life. In chapter 5, Paul calls these young baby believers towards this consistent life. Notice the phraseology in the reading. It's heavy going. Always be joyful. Never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances. Now those 11 words are heavy enough to sink the best of us. They're pretty heavy going. And the most experienced Christ follower, never mind someone new to faith, would feel somewhat weighted down by them. Unstoppable joy, unceasing prayer, relentless gratitude. I mean, there's three big bangers there that the best of us would be doing well to get one right, yeah? How is it possible to, to actually get all of those in sync in our lives at the same time? Is Paul serious? Unfortunately, I think he is. I say unfortunately because it seems all a wee bit realistic, but I think it becomes apparent we've got some of these things jumbled up about what true joy is or what true prayer actually is. So let's unpack. I love what C.S. Lewis says about joy. Joy is the serious business of heaven. Don't you love that definition? Joy is the serious business of heaven. In other words, when I have a connection with my heavenly father, joy will flow to me and through me. Joy is the serious business of heaven. It's become common to hear a distinction between joy and happiness. And that distinction is really, really helpful because they're definitely different. Joy is not living with a painted smile on your dial in every situation. In fact, it was really cool. I saw in an American church this past week a greeter at the door and they're wearing masks in this particular church, but the greeter had a smile painted on the outside of his mask. And that was pretty cool. But that's really not what joy is, just keeping a smile on your dial no matter what. My father told a story of visiting a church family back in the day. And this lady went to the cupboard to make a cup of tea for he and her husband. And she reached up high on the shelving to get this fine china out. And as she's reaching up high, it stumbled, she stumbled a little, it fell out of hand and crashed under the ground. And her response was, 
praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And my father felt that was so shallow. Is that what joy is, that we just praise the Lord? No matter what happens to us, you know, um, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. Is that kind of the level that we think about joy? If we are, we're missing it. I love what Tim Keller says. It takes me to a deeper imagination when it comes to joy. He says, if you're missing joy, it's because you're missing your life mission. If you're missing joy, it's because you're missing your life mission. This becomes back to our God connection, doesn't it? If you're missing a God connection, you'll most definitely be missing joy. Notice he describes joy there as a byproduct, not a goal. Similarly, C.S. Lewis says the same thing. Joy bursts into our lives when we go about doing the good at hand and not trying to manipulate things in times to achieve joy. Notice what he's saying. Grasping after joy will actually ensure you miss it. You can't chase joy down like it's an object to acquire. That's never it. It doesn't work like this. Joy is almost like a secondary thing rather than a primary thing. We don't focus on joy and wind up happy somehow. We don't work to conjure up feelings of bliss to prove to everyone we're joyful and kind of trick them and us. No, we focus on mission and in turn, as we focus on mission, joy is an outcome. Joy is a byproduct. Joy is something that happens almost to us as a result. Joy is the fruit of me getting my life in the sweet spot, in line with my God calling, my life calling. So it's not kind of a destination I'm stretching after. It's a consequence, actually, of getting myself right with God. Therefore, being joyful always is a possibility when I'm focused on that. It's less to do with how happy I feel. It's really more to do with me getting beyond me, actually, to experience real joy. So this is why joy has little to do with what's happening externally and far more about whether I'm on the track in a sweet spot with God. That's why it can be said of this church, even in their deep suffering, Always rejoice, be in joy. We can too with the right outlook. Joy is a fruit of being on mission with God. The call to consistency continues. Next, never stop praying. Verse 17, never stop praying. Now many a person has a spasmodic prayer life. You kind of start one day, miss the next. You get three right, you miss two. You get six in a row and you think you're really doing well and then you sleep in on day seven. Does that sound familiar to everyone? And what tends to happen then is we start to feel guilty. For many of us in church, joy uh, sorry, prayer is an area of guilt. And I even hear people say comments like this about the church corporately. Um, this is just going back over the years. They say, as a church, we don't pray enough. You know, Jesus said his, his church, his house would be called a house of prayer. We don't pray enough. To which I respond, I think you're right. We would be better to pray more. Question, how much time do you think we should dedicate to prayer? Now, whenever I ask that question, people get spooked because they know it's a trick question because it's un, unexplainable. To, to say how much time <clears throat> we should give to prayer. There's a good reason 
that, that to pull back from that because we are confused about what this whole arena of prayer actually means. When I was growing up, I learned through being in church that some of the things that were valuable in prayer were actually turned out to not be true. I've had to unlearn them as the years went by. But here's what I learned as I was growing up about prayer. If you sounded good when you were doing it, you must be really, really spiritual, like close to God. If you sounded good, if you had a special prayer voice, if you could put on a tone that sounded really, really, really spiritual, if you had an accent almost, then you must be really, really close to God. If you strung words together poetically, it was really, really cool. If you broke the five-minute barrier, you were on another plane. If you, here's the real kicker, if you managed to quote a Bible verse somewhere in the middle of that prayer, you were next level. You were very, very close to God. You were probably the fourth person in the Trinity. I've had to unlearn a lot of this nonsense. When Jesus gave his followers a standard of prayer, which is what we now call the Lord's Prayer, it's remarkably brief. I don't know if you've ever timed it. I have. It takes 20 seconds to say the Lord's Prayer. Where did we get the idea that long prayers are spiritual and short prayers aren't? It takes 20 seconds, less than a minute, 20 seconds to recite the Lord's Prayer. Now, this whole area of how long we pray is quite misleading. Stop and think about this. If you prayed for two hours this morning, now I'm willing to say I have my doubts, even if you said, yeah, that's me, that's me. Let's exaggerate the story and say you prayed from 4 a.m. to 8 a.m. this morning. You are a really, really prayerful person. You just dedicated four hours nonstop to prayer. Would God be impressed? No, it's not enough because the moment you stop at 8am, even after four hours at the grind, the moment you stopped, you're being disobedient to 1 Thessalonians 5, where it says, never stop praying. You see how when we put a time on this, we get led up the garden path? Prayer must be different to what we've first believed. Prayer mustn't be about kneeling down and closing our eyes and speaking audibly to God. Otherwise, we couldn't do anything else in life but pray. Prayer must be much more like our spiritual breath, just an ongoing activity that we weren't even quite aware of until we stopped and became conscious of it. It's kind of like a... just a spiritual breath. It's kind of an unconscious thing that's always happening that we didn't even really know we are doing until we stopped and gave it thought. It's living in communion with God. It's just being aware that not a moment passes by that I'm not with my Father God. That's prayer. Jesus, I'm yours. Thank you for sharing this moment with me. We breathe in and out and we thank him again that he's never going to abandon us or leave us. 17th century dishwasher, Brother Lawrence, turned his workplace as a dishwasher in a kitchen to a prayer meeting. He outlines how he learned to make the kitchen 
a place of prayer. And he's written this famous book called Practicing the Presence of God. So there he is, Brother Lawrence, washing dishes all day long. But not really. That's just what you saw outwardly. In reality, Brother Lawrence was somewhere else. He was preoccupied with far greater things. He understood the concept of unceasing prayer. And this is the consistency that a person with growing faith understands. They comprehend prayer. He's just inviting God into every space and every activity every day, as we sang of earlier. The story goes about a bunch of sailors who are sailing in deep sea waters and somehow their vessel caught fire. I mean, it was a tragic situation. They needed to act quickly. Now, one sailor says, let's all get down. This is an emergency. Let's all get down on our knees and pray about this situation. We need God involved. To which another sailor says, let's not get down on our knees. Let's go and get a bucket of water to put the fire and pray while we walk. You see how one person saw prayer as a disruption to what they were doing and the other person saw prayer as the fuel to what they were doing. That's prayer, the God energy that lays underneath every activity as we invite him into every activity. Now, true, the Bible contains dedicated times of prayer where people actually gave their focus to, to pray. Jesus himself did that. He drew aside in solitude and he prayed. But even so, let's see the intent behind that. What's going on with Jesus underneath those moments? What was he really doing? Was he presenting his shopping list to God saying, hey, I really need you to do X, Y and Z. In fact, A to Z. <laughs> was he presenting a shopping list? I don't think so. I think it was about connection. I think Prayer is not just talking to God. Prayer is being with God. Prayer is being with God. Sometimes when you know someone well and you're intimate with them, you can just be there. You don't even need to fill up space with talk. You can just enjoy being in their presence. And I'm sure much of the time Jesus enjoyed being with his father. For a believer who's going to live with a level of spiritual consistency, prayer underpins everything that they do. Every single moment they're acutely aware that God is with them and they don't go anywhere without that awareness or else they don't go there if they can't take God's presence with them in those spaces. Paul enlightens the Thessalonians about prayer from God's viewpoint. Apparently, God doesn't judge our prayer lives by how long we pray for. He judges them by how long we stop for. Do you notice the difference? God doesn't judge our prayer lives by how long we pray for. It's by how long we stop for. One hour of prayer in the morning isn't enough. If by that you mean you've locked God out of the other 23. Prayer is less about compliance and more about connection. Connection. Connection with your heavenly father. We strike another banger as we move on in the text. It's not easing up at all. Be thankful in all circumstances. Now, Johnny, you're getting ridiculous. I mean, the continuous prayer and rejoicing are one thing. The way you've explained it kind of makes some logical sense, but gratitude all the time, not even remotely likely. 
You need to find me on some days and you'll know I'm low on gratitude. I'm low on gratitude. Well, don't miss the key word in the verse. Notice what it doesn't say. It does not say be thankful for all circumstances. It doesn't say that. It says be thankful in all circumstances. There's a huge difference. Appreciate that discrepancy. We're not thankful for all circumstances of life. We're not thankful for them. We can be thankful in them, though. I don't know about you, but I'm not thankful for 2020. I think, quite frankly, it's ordinary. But even within such a trying, troubling, disruptive year, we can still have a grateful heart to God. And this means we can travel through the most challenging of season and hate what's unfolding all around us and yet still have a sweet spirit, still live with thankfulness in your heart. You say, John, give me a break. Why would I be grateful when everything's falling apart? Be thankful for a God who keeps his promises. You'd be thankful for a church family to walk alongside you within a challenging season. You'd be thankful for a country to live in that's blessed. You'd be thankful for a roof over your head and food in your belly. And beyond all that, you'd be thankful for a God that's still good, even when life doesn't feel so good. We can always be grateful no matter what comes against us. That's what a prevailing believer does. They have a consistency. They don't run hot and cold. Their levels of gratitude and prayer and joy are locked. They're locked. They have a heart of an overcomer. They're not grateful for everything that happens, but they're thankful for the God who carries them through it all. We need to rush quick. We've got one more discerning marker of a growing faith in verses 19 to 22. An open and discerning mindset. An open and discerning mindset. Here is another quality of a person whose faith is flourishing. Notice they are open and discerning. Never are they gullible, but never are they close to what God is going to do. We need to expect God to show up in unprecedented ways, in unexplainable ways. For if it's the God of the Bible we talk about, this is what he's like. This is what he's like. Open your Bibles and take a look. Now, I'm pulling out hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of history with these few extreme examples. Nonetheless, they're recorded in your Bibles. God leads people at times to do very, very peculiar things. Here's a couple of wild examples. If I'm learning from Isaac that the new way of saying that is is, sorry, sick, not wild. So Isaac says something sick and that's actually a good thing. I say, that's good, right? Sick is good. Okay, so here's a sick example if you're under 25. If you're over 25, they're wild examples. God led Hosea to marry a prostitute. God did that. Imagine Hosea coming around for a coffee and he says, hey, friend, I've got a word. And you say, a word, what, what's that mean? A word from who? A word from God. Okay, tell me about it. Yeah, well, I'm going to go down the local brothel and marry a girl there named Mandy. I mean, would you accept that without question? I imagine you'd find that pretty bizarre. How would you respond? I doubt you'd be agreeable. How about this one? God led Isaiah to strip off naked and go around spreading his message, not for three days, not for three hours, not for three months, for three years, a naked preacher. Imagine if we bring a guest speaker in there and they come and whisper to me up the front, hey, John, I'm just feeling the spirit move. So, yeah, okay, tell me what. I think I should preach naked tonight. 
I'm just heading into the toilet seat to strip off. I would say, mate, keep your gear on and head out this side door. Let's forget the talk. I mean, God doesn't lead people like that, does he? Again, in the biblical narrative, we find in Acts 2 that God's people, when the Spirit comes upon them, are called drunk fools. The crowd looking on says, look at them, they're smashed and it's only nine o'clock in the morning. I mean, what are they up to? And Peter has to stand up and say, no, 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 that's not it. That's not it. Not even close. These aren't drunk as you suppose. That's how they look, but they're not drunk. They're drunk on a different spirit, the Holy Spirit. God had come upon them in such a powerful way. Their bodies struggled to contain the move of his presence. I wonder how ready we are for a move of God, really. How ready are we? Or are we kind of like, ah, I'll play it safe. I'll stay away from all that kind of stuff. We're not going to take any risks. I think this church at Thessalonica had come to that point. They were a play it safe church. They didn't want religion to turn them weird. And they are faithful to the written word of God. And they're kind of logical and thoughtful people. And Paul has to write to them and say, hey, church, discernment is cool. Cynicism is not cool. Verse 9 and 20, don't stifle the Holy Spirit. Don't scoff at prophecies. A faith that's growing needs these things. You must stay open to God. Don't shut the gate to God moving. Stop stifling. Stop scoffing. Why do they need that instruction? There can only one reason, because they had. Stop stifling and scoffing at what God wanted to do. How do people get to that point? where they kind of shut down to new experiences from God. Well, either they personally experience some weird stuff or they hear about a church down the road and these churches are down the road. They were in the first century and they're still around us today where there'll be people lying on the floor, barking like dogs and claiming, God's really moving. It's like, oh, yeah, really? Something's moving, but I'm not sure it's good and I'm not sure it's God. And we kind of get to the point, we become the cynic when we hear about these things and we're like, if these people are over here, then I'll be somewhere way over here, distancing myself from them. Paul writes here, be careful. Avoid at all costs shutting God out of your life. Paul thinks it's disastrous to become the cynic and that's why he begs them here, hey, don't shut up shop. Don't be so concerned about deception that you wind up dead. Don't trade off one for the other. People of growing faith can be open-minded and discerning at the same time. They facilitate movements of God's spirit and yet at the same time decipher the good from the bad. As we see in verse 21, test everything, hold on to what is good. And in verse 2, in verse 22, rather, doing that will mean we can accomplish staying away from every kind of evil. The affirmation here is, church, you're doing well to avoid evil. That's really, really, really good. But just be careful in your desire to be theologically pure, you don't impede upon the way God wants to move and work in your life. We don't have to trade off pure 
theology for the power of the Spirit. They can be friends. They're supposed to work together in every Bible-based church. You say, John, if that's possible, why is it so rare? It's a tough space to manage. Open and discerning faith. And I've spoken about this earlier in the year, but I'll refer to it with the graphic on screen now. As we think about the head, heart and hands, and we recognise our own personality types within this. There's, there's people of the head who experience God through logic and through theology and deep thinking. There's people of the heart who just want to see the spirit move and aren't thinking about that deep theology at all. And then there's people of the hands who are into social justice and seeing the church show love in practical ways. And so we have churches of the head and we have churches of the heart and we have churches of the hands. They unknowingly choose the corner and even we ourselves do this based on our personality type and sometimes our experience as we run from a previous corner when we realise we're out of balance. Let's focus on the head and hands for the couple of minutes we've got left. If you commonly claim to be getting visions, dreams and revelations, you're not quenching the spirit, you're not downing that side, the question for you is about the head. How much of the Bible have you read lately? Your development will be getting the written word into you and understanding context and understanding meaning and genre and the like. That's your focus. Make sure your testing filter is operational, which verse 21 talks about. Test everything. How are you going to test everything if you haven't first invested in the written word of God? You've got nothing to test it with. But if you're a person of the head, as this church was was drifting into that corner where they become cynical of other things, then your development area is the heart. If you can't ever point to a time in the past week where spontaneity was part of your faith or you're driving down the road and suddenly you felt God whispering to you, you're missing out. You're missing out. And the word of the Lord to you would be stop stifling the spirit. You're missing out. Throw your heart open to the workings of God. Stop trying to rationalise everything. Walking with God is a walk of faith and there's, there's points where we've just got to go there and risk, risk it in order to experience him in deeper ways. If we try and rationalise everything, we'll miss out on really journeying with this God who certainly has some mystery to him. We can't systematise everything about God. We can't guarantee how he's going to work before we step out. Jesus explains the working of God's spirit to Nicodemus, who's thoroughly confused, by the way. Nicodemus is a head guy. Nicodemus is a guy who's high on knowledge and low on experience. High on knowledge, but low on experience. And Jesus tries to to explain to Nicodemus how God moves. And he says this, The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone born of the Spirit. Does that clear things up, Nicodemus? Not even close. I'm not surprised by his response. He's clueless. He's like, huh? How does this work? How can this be? I don't really know what you're talking about. There's a mystery to the way the Spirit works. If you're a head person who's missing out on the movement of the Holy Spirit in your life, as this church 
had become that way, then you need to let your faith be stretched, just like this Thessalonian church had to. And here's why. A growing faith demands it. A growing faith demands it. If you're happy right where you are and you don't actually want to grow and move to new levels, then you don't need to change anything. But if you want to continue to go deeper in God and experience Him more and more and more, you're going to have to take some risks. You're going to have to get out of your comfort zone. You're going to have to throw off the shackles and say, I don't fully understand this, but Lord, I'm stepping out and I'm trusting you with the results. We're going to sing Oceans as we close out tonight, as the music team come. And would you stand and I'll lead you in prayer. God, we want to be a growing people. We want to be a people who continue to experience you in deeper ways, in stronger moves. God, we don't want to limit you with our predetermined ideas of how you should work, how you should show up, and we try and lock you in a box. God, we just take you, allow you to come out of that box today, those theological restrictions we've put on you. We want to see you in greater ways. We want to see your spirit move. We invite you even now as we sing, Lord, to break in and give us revelations, God, as we open our hearts to you. May there be lives healed as we sing in this moment. May we see you come to us and take us deeper. We pray it in Jesus' name.